0: Christian Education, a talk by Anthony Cleary at the 15th Annual Call to Holiness Conference. Uh, thank you very much, Father, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, gravissimum educamus. Um, often one of the terms that you may have come across uh, which was popularised by uh, His Holiness Pope John XXIII was of, uh which was the bringing up to date or a time of renewal. And this was certainly true of um, this declaration on Christian education, the importance of Christian education, because it followed on um, the declaration on the importance of Christian education for young people, promulgated uh, by Pope Pius XI in 1929. This uh, document, of course, um, by Paul VI, I think provides a watershed moment in terms of our examination, particularly of Catholic education and private education in Australia today and it was to precede some of the great apostolic exhortations which would focus on both evangelisation and catechesis and on the place and the significant um, importance of Catholic identity, both for Catholic schools and Catholic uh, tertiary institutions. In 1948, we had the Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights. And a part of that was the fact that the right of education was an inalienable right for all people. And it was that concept that it was actually reinforced um, in this, doc- in this dec- declaration on the importance of Christian education. What you see in this uh, were a series of principles that I think outline and I think could be used very much as a guideline for how Catholic schools could operate today and also even for those parents who choose to homeschool their own children. So why is education an inalienable right? And it was a recognition that education in this declaration was not only about the achievement of personal good but the achievement and the fulfilment and the realisation of potential for the greaterment of the common good. And so this very much benefit of self and society went back right to the Greek philosophy of Socrates in terms of what education was about. And that it's etymological roots of educare, that is, that it is a drawing out and a leading out, but what was made distinct in this was that education was to be based upon two key concepts, and that of being of truth and of love. Paul the Six, in uh, the promulgation of this uh, declaration, was able to set forth in what should characterize Christian education, and I would ask us to think of the nature of Catholic education, Um, private schooling at this time in Australia itself. Schooling which by and large was was undertaken almost exclusively by religious brothers and sisters and um, priests. Almost non-existent was the presence of lay people. And yet today that trend has been reversed And the challenge that we might ask is, have lay people embraced the principles upon which this was founded? What is laid out very, very clearly in Grevisan and Educatus is that we look for both a moral and intellectual endowment of our young people. That traces itself back almost to the warning of Theodore Roosevelt, who argued that if you form the intellect of a person, but not the morals, then you create a menace for society. Also advocated was about the fact that people must be brought into a deeper knowledge and love of God. And there was an explicit reference to, of course, the imperative need for a true, uh, valid, family-based sexual education. It emphasized the notions of critical inquiry and moral reasoning and a love of learning. And so these things were to be the grounding of what was to characterize education within um, the Catholic tradition. We see there that Faith was a gift which was to be recognised and to be nurtured and that there was to be a sense of one's uh, being brought into a a greater commitment into uh, their regular liturgical practice and also into their call of uh, being evangelisers themselves. The promulgation outlines a series of principles which start exclusively which start exclusively with the inalienable right but then blend themselves and both co- both cover secular as well as Christian education and the importance of the distinction between the two what Paul the six identifies which was again a reinforcement and a general mentor was that parents are first teachers in faith. Now we know today of the great and significant task that that is. So in 1965 what is clearly outlined is the fact that they are both the primary and the principal educators in faith. And it is they who are meant to bring their children into a knowledge of God according to the faith that their children have received in baptism, a worship of him and a love of him and of their neighbour. So this document, 50 years on,
1: resonates
0: with great many challenges that are highly relevant to us today. Because in a society in which there is a fragmentation of family life, and efforts in some parts to even redefine what constitutes a family. We go back to the bare bones of what the challenges were laid out. And this at a time in 1965, which of course was a period of unprecedented social upheaval, Whilst it hadn't seen yet the disintegration of the family unit in Western society, we were very much on the cusp of that. We see there what were then to be the various aids to Christian education, and Pope Paul VI outlined before all of the documents of Evangelii Nunciandi and Catechesi Tridende by Pope Paul VI and John II respectively, John Paul II respectively outlined the importance of religious education as being the at the grassroots of Christian education and what was to be religious education to enlighten and strengthen faith to nourish life according to the Spirit of Christ for intelligent and active participation in the liturgical mystery and for a greater motivation for apostolic activity. And I would suggest that those four aims haven't always been followed through in the 50 years that has followed in religious education And I say that humbly, despite having a title which talks about being responsible for religious education. So we think of them again. Enlightening and strengthening faith. A life nourished in the spirit of Christ. Intelligent and active participation in the liturgical mystery, and a motivation for apostolic activity. It wouldn't be until 1975, of course, that Paul VI would speak about that the Church itself existed in order to evangelise the person of uh, Jesus Christ. Again, what we saw here. Despite the fact that uh, you had the vast majority of teachers certainly in Australia and at that time in other parts of the Western world um, being religious, um, principle number five outlined the importance of schools specifically in terms of the importance of teachers. And again, I think this was very much a precursor to 1979, Catechizia Tridende, where, um, and, and again, the work of uh, Paul VI in Evangelii Nuncianti talking about the need for teachers to be witnesses, that for, for there to be an authentic transmission of faith, one needed to see their commitment to vocation as lifelong, and as in a lived witness rather than just a pure knowledge. And so what it requires was outlined that those people who chose to be teachers required special qualities of mind and heart, careful and diligent preparation, and a continuing readiness to renew and to adapt. All too often, sadly, Many people have chosen to uh, appropriate the words of Pope John Twenty Third when he spoke of the need for the church to discern and to read the signs of the times and respond to them. I think that many people have taken the discernment and reading the signs of the times as a, an acquiescence to the times themselves rather than trying to truly ensure uh, an integration and an illumination of culture through the light and the lens of faith. And so teachers become a a focal point um, of this particular declaration. And what that spoke of was the fact for the need for their training and for their uh, formation not just to be for the very brief period of time as it was in those times, only two years of tertiary studies, that they needed to be thorough, that they needed to be trained in the scriptures and in liturgy and in apologetics. Now, again, one of the great challenges that we see is that um, we know that for many, for a long time, there has often been a great challenge to ensure that the quality of um, training and formation and preparation at a tertiary level is perhaps in keeping with the aspirational principles outlined by Paul VI. And we see now, I suppose, uh, not surprisingly, that both of the Catholic universities uh, in Australia, the University of Notre Dame and also uh, the Australian Catholic University have established um, departments of identity and mission. Because I suppose if there's no clarity uh, in those two areas, then really we, we it's a buttless ship. And so there is also a, a determination, and I think this was spelled out later in the document, that... Um, Excordia Cordia Ecclesia in 1990 by Pope John um, Paul II really spelled out what was the responsibility of Catholic tertiary institutions and of the significant task and role that they play. Because if they are the people preparing the teachers and therefore forming the students, Of generations to come theirs is a significant responsibility and uh, what it was critical there was that there was not only an understanding of the teachings of the church but a fidelity to them and a fidelity not just in um, in awareness but also in lived practice Uh, And I think that's been a critical juncture point. Uh, And it was reiterated uh, only two years ago by Pope Benedict um, in response to what what were challenging times by a number of the very prestigious Catholic universities of the United States who had seen uh, that it was okay to invite um, civil and political leaders who had positions which were diametrically opposed to the teachings of the church. And so I suppose this is where, when we look at and extend, what are the implications of this document? This document in 1965, which was objected to, which was not concurred with by only 35 bishops in the Council, has significant implications for schools, universities, homes, and parishes, because it speaks about the triangulation of the educational mission, of the catechising and evangelising mission, is one that resides between home, school, or university, and church, and the critical role um, that pastors do play. Again, at a time historically, uh, when Catholic schools did not receive state aid, they were funded largely through the um, the, pay, the fees of parents and through as we know uh, on the back of faiths, etc, uh, there was no government funding at this time. but the church spoke of the fact that given they, there was a right, an inalienable right, for a freedom in education, that is a freedom for private schooling, there was also the need, and it spells out, public subsidies are paid out in such a way that parents are truly free to choose, according to their conscience, the schools that they want for their children. And of course, uh, this was only to be two years after the uh, three years after the very famous uh, strike in Goulburn in New South Wales. And of course, again, we saw after the election of Gough Whitlam and the release of the Carmel report, we had a ratification um, for what had developed in the late 1960s of government funding for private schools. And so this document, which was not only speaking to parents speaking to teachers, speaking to religious orders and priests, was also speaking quite clearly and unashamedly about the responsibility of governments, that they had to respect this uh, declaration, which went back to 1948, um, and respect the freedom of choice uh, that parents were in fact entitled to We of course know that one of the great challenges, and I would outline this, is that the funding issue is not one which is a win-win situation by virtue of receiving money. We also have uh, in many cases, particularly in Canada and Great Britain, and to a lesser degree in the United States and also in other parts of uh, Western Europe, including France and Italy, where by virtue of the receipt of funding, Catholic schools have been required to teach core government curriculums, which sometimes are at odds with church teaching. And so what has happened is that the faith that they have tried to articulate and espouse and promote and inculcate has often been diluted by, um, a- again, they, there are no such exemptions for anti-discrimination that we still at this point in time in Australia um, have. So moral education as well. and. Assist families so that the education of their children can be imparted according to individual moral and religious principles of their families, and so there was a clear understanding that there was a, there, there was a need to respond to the, the the problems of society which were beginning to emerge. And what we saw here was a period in which I suppose uh, religious education started in fact to move away from what had been strictly a catechetical model um, to what occurred uh, just prior to this and and after this was very much a charismatic model. Um, And again, many of you uh, would be well familiar with this. So what then is, according to uh, The promulgation on the importance of uh, Christian education. What is the role and the nature of Catholic schools? And again, I would suggest to you, for all the people in this room, there would be as many different interpretations and also as many different aspirations for what Catholic schools are and could and should be. It's about Establishing cultural goals and the human formation of young people. Animated by the gospel of freedom and charity. So we go back to that dual-fold consideration. When we talk about freedom, and I think that was one phrase which was uh, perhaps used uh, inappropriately from this uh, declaration, when we talk about animated by the gospel spirit of freedom and charity, we know that the freedom that the gospels speak of is the freedom of truth. Uh, and I think that was outlined again very beautifully in uh, Veritata's Splendor. Uh, and that once that once that once truth is discovered, then one also does have an obligation uh, to pursue it and to follow it. Um, It speaks of the need for Catholic schools to be um, promoters of Catholic social teaching because it does speak about the social mission and the social doctrine of the church and the betterment and the improvement of the culture. And we've known that, unfortunately, that even um, Catholic social teaching has been, uh, of course, diluted down to uh, a very limited understanding of stewardship and a preferential option for the poor um, without even recognising that the bedrock principle of that is, of course, a day, the dignity of the human person made in the image and likeness of God, and, of course, human life as the inalienable right that precedes all other rights. Um, And the notion of service comes into this. And in some ways, this declaration was an affirmation also of the tremendous work that religious were doing in schools. Because at that period of time, the vast majority of our school system was, of course, conducted by our brothers and sisters, the majority of whom were orders which were imported from France and uh, from um, England, a number of them, uh, in the case of the, the Christian brothers. I think what comes through repeatedly, however, and a document that I'll leave down the back afterwards, is a document on church... Uh, Outlines, church encyclicals and exhortations on Catholic education uh, from 1965 on and there are a series of seven core documents and I think perhaps what that indicates is it is an ongoing refinement um, and a reiteration of the things that we know are sometimes said um, but often are not followed that teachers, not only through their instruction, but according to this declaration, through their life, bear witness to Christ, who is teacher par excellence. And often what we've had is this great struggle in education, and and it is true, where people have tried to separate the two. Where people who often charge with the great responsibility of um, religious instruction, have tried to um, accommodate in their own conscience the fact that they don't believe what they're, they're teaching. That they believe that they can be a successful teacher only on knowledge, rather than the true formation of their own heart, and I suppose it's this is the one thing that was already starting to to show through, is that um, and sometimes and sadly and sadly and you saw it particularly in the period. Um, after the Second Vatican Council, where you had a tremendous radicalisation of religious life and where many of the religious orders themselves um, went through great soul-searching about where it was, the the role and the place and the apostolic mission that they, they would play. So teachers are not just seen as the architects of pedagogy, or those who seek a life of learning, but those who seek a love of Christ and to love like Christ. And so lay teachers in Catholic schools, which was released in nineteen eighty two, then became very much a watershed document um, for the latter part of the, uh, the second uh, of the, the second millennium and about the great responsibility, because by 1982, that's when the tide had turned in Australia. And you started to see what was the beginning of a change of leadership from religious to lay. And, uh, for example, in the Archdiocese of Sydney today, of 149 schools, primary and secondary, only three are led by a religious principle. This document also was able to name quite prophetically that there would be a need for different schools. That we know that Catholic schools aren't just catering for those um, who are baptised in practice. In fact, quite often in many places, in many urban centres and particularly in rural and remote parts, of the 28 dioceses of Australia, many of our schools would have a proportion of students non-Catholic, which exceeds those who are baptized and certainly practicing. And so the document speaks of the need to attend also to those students who are not Catholic. And in this, I think very much um, The the Holy Father and the Council were identifying schools which existed in some parts of Eastern Europe, certainly in the Middle East and certainly in Southeast Asia, but what was to be the case and what is the reality of Australia today? The promulgation outlined the need for there to be schools which were technical schools and to cater for those with learning needs for those who are disabled, and for those, ironically, who had a special religious vocation. And so it names quite clearly that not only do we need to be giving, uh, there should there be preference for those who uh, certainly are on the margins of society, and we do that by virtue of our social doctrine and our social mission, but also for clearly for those who have a real vocation? That we need to foster that, and to nurture that, and to grow that. And so, I think what you again saw was the divergence and the diversification, very much of uh, of Catholic schooling, Catholic schools into what they perhaps are today. I think the great um, the great challenge, of course, has been um, you know. In seeking to be uh, something to many, many different groups um, you know, we've got to be very very careful that we don't compromise um, at the end of the day, we don't compromise what is the ideal and ultimate goal and that is bringing people into a, a knowledge and a love and an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. If we talk about what is the identity of our schools, our schools, first and foremost, beginning and end should be Christocentric in nature and purpose. They must have opportunities to grow that relationship for all people. The document outlines, because sometimes this is what we triumph for. Our schools have sometimes in the past um, been triumphalistic about their academic results or their sporting results or their numbers. But this document warns that our schools should be outstanding, not in the way of growing numbers, but for their pursuit of knowledge and of faith. And that, um, that we must, and great emphasis is given to the very important role in the selection of teachers. That teachers must be chosen who clearly have a life and who have a connect with the very nature of the school itself. So what you have here is this, uh, and it's one of the shorter documents that came out of the council um in a few weeks time monday in a couple of weeks 28th of october we will mark the anniversary of its promulgation so what are the things that it's really speaking about that our education seeks to develop a social conscience that our education is about bringing young people into a realization of their full potential so that they can contribute to society by understanding the giftedness that they've been endowed with by God. But that ultimately that giftedness is not its self-service but its self-sacrifice for the common good. About critical inquiry and moral, moral reasoning and a responsibility to exercise personal freedom wisely in the betterment of self and of others to equip people with virtues and good habits, and that knowing that moral reasoning and knowledge are both indispensable. And that when we speak of the common good, what is the common good? It is based, founded first and foremost on truth. It is built up in justice, and it is and must always be animated by love. The document, uh, Gravissimum Educanus, speaks about that deliberate ignorance is a perversion of our own nature. That we must embrace education as human beings, not reject it. And it's a fa- if we reject it, it is a failure to develop what is fundamentally good about ourselves. And so our schools, again, must be centres of justice, freedom, and contribute to the development constantly. So the challenge, therefore, is when we speak about education and we speak about the drawing out, this document, some 48 years ago, has enormous implications for the way our schools are structured, are run, are seen, and how they are today. The document outlines quite clearly that at the end of the day, parents in their freedom of choice not only have a freedom of choice between school systems, but also can take, have the freedom to choose to educate their child themselves. Should they feel that they have a better chance to equip their sons or daughters not to go out and cope with the world, but to go out and change the world for the better, then it is not just an option for them, but it is almost an expectation on them that they will take a key role in this. What are the challenges we have? The challenges we have are that we are beset by a myriad of forces external, particularly in the secular media and increasingly hostile government, in some cases, governments, which try to undermine our freedoms, try to erode them, try to wind it back so that we do not have the right to choose who we employ. So we need to be mindful of that. We need to be able to accept the money not as... um, than a determination as to what we will teach or how we will operate, but is a right that we have as Australians in this country in the determination of a freedom of choice on how we want our children to be educated. The great challenge of our teachers so that they will be people of faith and who will see their faith as a lifelong journey in which they encounter the person of Christ and in which they are not fooled into this uh, misbelief that one can separate knowledge and witness and that ultimately at the end of the day what we want are not teachers, our vocation calls us to have witnesses, witnesses to the person of Jesus Christ. And when they are teaching, they're not teaching their own view of the magisterium of the Holy See They are teaching what the Holy See teaches. They are not interpreters of that, but presenters of that. And they should lead young people into um, an understanding of it, rather than presenting it as something to be debunked, challenged, questioned, or rejected. And so we need to be really clear that our schools are, as the bishops of New South Wales said in 2006, they really are a jewel in the crown. We have a very rare opportunity in this country. We have an education system which is vast and which educates, you know, 40%, I believe, of the nation's population. This is an opportunity not to be missed. This is an opportunity not for those just who are baptised and those who are practising, but we are an evangelising church. It's an opportunity to reach out to those young people and through them, reach out to their families. Because I think that all too often, that's the elephant in the room. In 1965, yes it would be true and generally accepted that parents were the first, the foremost, the primary and the principal educator of their children. I'm not sure that we can say the same today when in some cases we're in single-parent homes or in many cases even same-sex homes. And so what we need to do is we we need to seek ways to empower parents to retake the responsibility that they have. And so the challenge for Catholic schools and the challenge for the Catholic Church is not just to look at the young people before them, but the complex web of interrelationships that comes with them, to peers and, in particular, to families. Because all too often, I feel, That what is being rejected in the classroom, in the mind of an adolescent, is because of the six to seven years of white haunting that's already taken place in the home. Or sadly, if we don't have teachers who themselves don't believe it, we must look for ways to empower and to form the young people who are choosing to teach in our schools. And for them to see that this is an honoured and valued profession that they should be um, totally committed to. I think that um, Pope John Paul II, um, Nova Millennio Inuente, on the threshold of the third millennium, is very beautiful um, letter, and he said, we remember the past with gratitude. And I think, you know, we're in a church where we're not only... Um, we're not, we don't, not only live within a tradition we're a part of a living tradition we've got a great heritage we've, we've got, we are custodians of a heritage which has been given to us and granted to us um, by many great heroes and heroines of the past in this church of Ignatius we remember that he was the person who said give me the boy until he is seven and I will show you the man And so we can never underestimate, you know, even those first few years of life and what they do in terms of people's understanding of self, others, and of God. But we remember the past with gratitude. We live the present with enthusiasm, that we need to be people of conviction, that evangelization is uh, a a task of joy, that we need to be um, faithful messengers, And we need to go out with the same conviction and same zealous enthusiasm as the first disciples. And we look to the future with hope and confidence because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This document, the importance of Christian education, is founded on two things. Christ drawing out Christian education. Drawing out. Christ seeks all people to draw them out. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Christian education, if done properly, is not half-baked. It's not about what's half-empty or half-full. It's about it will lead one into a fullness of life. And Christ seeks us out. In the book of Revelation there is a very beautiful image of Jesus knocking on the door and um, I'm standing at the door knocking and if you hear my knocking I'll come in and eat with you and you with me. And so it is our education should reflect that desire to bring people into an intimate relationship with Christ. He is the ultimate teacher. Mother Teresa had said, I am merely a pencil in the hands of Jesus. And if teachers saw that they were merely that, we would have great teachers and we would have great schools. I think we are turning the corner in many regards. I think that the challenges outlined by the Holy Father Paul VI and the bishops of the council um, are as true today as they were 48 years ago. But one has to be optimistic. And I think one has to be able to identify the areas in which you know society has gone backwards. Society has gone backwards in regards to family. It has an instability there. There is a resurgence, a renewal, an adornment of our identity and mission. Um, so look, uh, I'd just like to thank you and I'm happy to take uh, any questions. That was Anthony Cleary on Christian Education. This talk is from the Call to Holiness Conference on the Second Vatican Council. For more information, visit calltoholiness.com.au And for more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.